Well, I want to just dive right into this. And I want to start with what I want to call the concern. Why is this so rare? Uh, why is it so rare that someone is committed to be an expositor of the Word of God, and yet he is not the evangelist that he should be? Why is it like Martin Luther talked about the drunk man on the horse? He's always falling off on one side or the other. And there is a tendency for men to either be strong in exposition and they're weak in evangelism, or they're strong in evangelism and they're pretty weak in exposition. I mean, why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be both? Well, I want to try to answer that. Why is evangelistic exposition so rare? And I want to just go through this rather quickly. Number one, a naive assumption. A naive assumption that all church members are saved. A naive assumption that if someone prays a prayer, they're actually converted. A naive assumption that just because someone professes Christ, therefore they possess Christ. A naive assumption that just because someone is doctrinally orthodox, that they are genuinely converted, that that is a very naive assumption. And Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say unto me, unto me in that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? I mean, they were involved in church work and ministry to the nth degree. And Jesus says to them, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. So I think it's so rare, number one, so many pastors naively think that everyone in their church is converted. I would say over the I pastored for 34 years. I saw hundreds of people come to faith in Christ. I can easily tell you that 19 out of 20 were church members. Elders, deacons, pastors' wives, Sunday school teachers. I had one deacon converted in a deacon's meeting <laughs> sitting next to me. So... I believe that we are so naive, so therefore, we do not preach the gospel because we think we're just preaching to the choir. Second, why it's so rare, rigid exposition. And I'm all about Bible exposition. But there are some men who only teach what is immediately in this text. And if the cross is not in this text, if Jesus is not in this text, if salvation is not in this text, if grace is not in this text, then it's not going to come from their lips during this sermon. And they are so rigidly painted into a corner, they, they are boring a hole down to China in the micro, but they have lost sight of the, of the macro. And the cross is not in every text but we ought to be able to get to the cross from every text. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> I, I love churches where when they talk to you while you're preaching. <laughs> they start yelling, help him, Jesus. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, I must really be bad for... <laughs> They're shouting that at you. <laughs> so, <laughs> come on. <laughs> I'm talking to you. <laughs> You've, been <ro> <laughs> You've been wrong too long. All right. So, rigid exposition. You've got to always have your hand on the cross as you preach. And I am not saying that the cross is in every verse. I'm not one of these allegorizers who want to see Jesus in every jot and tittle. That's more imagination than interpretation. But I can get to Jesus, and I can get to the cross. And Spurgeon said, all roads lead to London, and all texts lead to the cross. But why it's so rare? It's just a rigid exposition. Third, historical overreaction. We are so scared of Charles Finney that we have swung the pendulum so hard that we've just knocked a hole in the wall on the other side. We want to be as far away, and rightly so, in so many ways, but we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, he was manipulative. Yes, he had a false gospel. Yes, he was, um, his methodology was, was, was wrong. But nevertheless, we cannot overreact just because of Charles Finney or some church 27 verses of just as I am. And people start coming forward just so we can go to lunch. So, so we, we can't overreact. We have to be red-hot evangelistic expositors. Fourth is hyper-Calvinism. And someone may not be hyper-Calvinistic in their theology, but they are in their methodology. They, they are never calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, you, are, you, are, you have your toes right up to being a hyper-Calvinist. I would rather you be a red-hot Arminian than to be a hyper-Calvinist. It is the stench and the death blow to, to uh, dynamic Christian living. I would rather you be John Wesley or Charles Wesley than, than to be a hyper-Calvinist. Fifth, a contemporary bubble. So many people, so many pastors are not really students of church history, and that we just live in a, in a little bubble of this, of this time and have really never read George Whitfield, have really never read Charles Haddon Spurgeon, have never really read Jonathan Edwards, have never really read... Martin Lloyd-Jones, have never really read James Montgomery Boyce, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just living in a cul-de-sac. It's just living in a kind of a, a, the corner of a room, and you need to read the great preachers of history and, and put your finger on the pulse of their preaching and for it to, 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 to be contagious with you. Six is in what I want to call the indicative rut. The entire sermon is in the indicative mood. Statement of fact, 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 statement for an hour. Great evangelistic preaching knows how to shift gears out of the indicative mood and shift into the interrogative mood and begin to ask questions. Where are you today with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you committed your life to Christ? Why do you postpone? Why do you procrastinate committing your life to Christ? Have you believed in Christ? What evidence do you see in your life? What, what fruit do you see in your life? What would it take for God to bring you to the place where you come through the narrow gate and enter into the kingdom of heaven? Where are you in relationship? to the narrow gate. Are your toes right up to it? Have you seen others go through it? You admire the narrow gate, don't you? Then what is holding you back? All of those were just questions. And when you be begin to speak with the indicative mood, people put down their pen, they put down a piece of paper, they look up and they, for the first time, have to think because you're not giving them the answer. The indicative mood, you're giving them the answer. They're just taking notes. They're just listening. The interrogative, you begin to audit their life, and they begin to examine themselves. But then you shift into the imperative mood, which is a command. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Enter through the narrow gate. <laughs> if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the imperative mood. It's, it's commanding. Now, the whole sermon cannot be in the imperative mood. But when you use it, it is extremely effective. And that's how the Bible is written, by the way. But then there is also the exclamatory mood. That is the sentence with an exclamation point at the end. Oh, what a great Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is mighty to save. Evangelistic preaching knows how to shift gears from the indicative mood to the interrogative mood to the imperative mood to the exclamatory mood where it's like the ocean goes in, it comes out, it goes in, it comes out. But you're causing people to think, but you're also commanding them to believe while you're teaching the truth. Number seven, 
small church. I've pastored a small church. You know everybody. And you want to pull back from preaching the gospel because there's no visitors here today. I mean, we, we all know one another. I mean, we're all cousins that have married in this church. <laughs> I mean, if one family went down, the whole church would go down. <laughs> and so we, we, we tend to pull back from more aggressive preaching because we, 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 we've grown up with one another and there's not a lot of traffic that's going through the church Sunday by Sunday. Eighth would be spiritual lethargy, that the preacher is complacent, has become apathetic, lukewarm, um, somewhat in a, in a rut, somewhat going through a routine. Let me give you just two more. Ninth, hell forgotten. We need to remember that hell is a real place where real people are going, and everyone enters this world on the broad path headed to hell. What do you have to do to go to hell? Nothing. Just continue to float downstream like a dead fish. You're already going to hell. You, that's why you must enter through the narrow gate and exit this path that is taking you to destruction. And then the tenth thing that I would say is mistaking a lecture for a sermon. There are too many guys in our part of the body of Christ who are so smart and so brilliant that they give lectures on Sunday morning. And a lecture is not a sermon. There is a world of difference between teaching and preaching. All preaching begins with teaching and includes teaching, but it goes beyond teaching. Preaching stands on the shoulders of teaching. Uh, preaching has a, has a fifth gear shift. Preaching goes to meddling. A young man once came to Martin Lloyd-Jones and said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, can you tell me the difference between preaching and teaching? And Lloyd-Jones said, young man, if you have to ask me the difference between preaching and teaching, it is obvious you have never heard preaching. Because if you've heard preaching, you know the difference between teaching and preaching. Teaching is all information-oriented. That's wonderful. We need that. And it is usually given in a lecture. We need lectures, just not in the pulpit. We need them in the classroom. But preaching takes the teaching and then advances with it. So this is why evangelistic preaching is so rare. Uh, I could also add bad mentors. Uh, I could add being overly intellectual, um, etc. So second, I want, I want to go now to the second heading, from the concern now to the compulsion. Why must we do evangelistic preaching? Why is it so incumbent upon us? 
And the first thing that I would say is the Great Commission. In Luke's gospel, Jesus commanded His disciples to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, Luke's Great Commission is the only commission that actually gives the message that the disciples are to give. It is to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, the Great Commission is non-negotiable. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. And so we are commanded to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There are only two types of preachers. There's an evangelistic preacher, and there's a disobedient preacher. Wow, I heard a little mumble there. (laughs) All right, number two, Jesus' example. Jesus was an evangelistic preacher. In fact, Jesus was an itinerant evangelist. Uh, Jesus was constantly on the move, moving from city to city and from place to place. And when you read Mark 1, 15 and 16, and, and when you read the beginning in Matthew 4, as Jesus begins His public ministry, He comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at, is at hand. And the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is a tour de force of evangelistic preaching. Now, it's also geared to His own disciples who, who, uh, who, who know Him, but there are also there those, there are those there that Jesus says, He who hears these words of mine and acts upon them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And when the rains came and the winds blew and beat against the house, it did not fall because it was built on the rock. He who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them is like a very foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when the rains came and the winds blew and all that pictures, the gathering storm that will be unleashed on the last day and the final judgment, great will be its fall because it was built upon the sand. That is the greatest sermon ever been preached in the history of the world by the greatest expositor and by the greatest evangelist who has ever walked this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a passionate evangelistic sermon. And number three, Jesus' discipleship. He trained men to be, to be evangelistic in their preaching. Jesus said in Matthew 4 verse 19, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. You're going to have to follow me, and as it were, get in the boat with me, and we'll launch out into the world together, and I'm going to have to teach you how to cast your net. I'm going to have to teach you where the fish are, but you're going to have to learn how from me to draw the net and for the fish to be in the boat, and for us to take them back to shore. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. We could easily say, if you're not fishing, you're not following. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sent them out. He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, those who are perishing. And so Jesus is training with the disciples involved um, equipping them for a lifetime of evangelistic preaching. Fourth, the apostolic pattern. When you read the book of Acts, you see 
preaching that is directed to win people to faith in, in Jesus Christ. Do you know that one out of every four verses in the book of Acts is a sermon or the equivalent of in a, in a very passionate witness with other people standing around? Um, 25% of the book of Acts is evangelistic preaching. And then apostolic command, number five, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, when he says, preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with much patience and instruction. You come down to verse 5, same context, and he says, do the work of an evangelist. In the context, I believe he is saying this to Timothy for his ministry within his own church there at Ephesus, that those who are wanting to have their ears tickled, those wanting to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, are those within his own church. And he must fulfill his ministry and do the work of an evangelist. That, that is incumbent upon us as well. The, the charge to preach the Word and the charge to do the work of an evangelist as we preach the Word is just as binding upon us. And number six, the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an evangelistic sermon. At the end of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, verse 22, the entire book is called a word of exhortation. And that very same phrase is used in Acts 13 to describe one of the apostles' sermons. And the warning passages within the book of Hebrews, those five major warning passages, are evangelistic pleas to come all the way to faith in Christ. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And, and it's a, it issues warning not to trample underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and insult the Spirit of grace. Those, in my estimation, are passionate evangelistic sermons. Here's an entire book in the New Testament that R.C. Sproul says, after the book of Romans, is the second most important epistle in the New Testament. And it is a word of exhortation. It is an evangelistic message. Well, if we had time, we could look at other reasons why we should be so committed. Uh, the arrangement of the Psalms. Psalm 1, Psalm 2, like two gatekeepers as you enter into the, to the book of Psalms. They weren't the first two Psalms to be written. The first Psalm to be written was Psalm 90. The last Psalm to be written was 126. There's about a thousand years in between. Psalm 1, Psalm 2 are placed there by the compilers intentionally to let us all know Psalm 1. There's only two roads in life. There is the way of the righteous and there is the way of the wicked. And everyone is traveling one of these two roads. It, it is black and white. It is stark contrast. Now, these two roads are not close together. They are headed in opposite directions. One is like a tree that's been firmly planted by streams of water. The other is like the chaff that, that is blown away in the judgment. The book of Psalms, which is the most important book in the Old Testament in my estimation, begins with this evangelistic plea, and then Psalm 2 is like the other bookend on the other side of this entrance, 
And it concludes by calling the reader to kiss the sun, to do homage to the sun, to take refuge in the sun. How evangelistic is the book of Psalms, et cetera, et cetera. We could talk about so much more. Third main heading, the clarity. What does the gospel include? And I wish I had time to, to go to take us through Romans 1, 1 through 7, and just break out the different aspects of the gospel. But to synthesize this in the short amount of time that I have, we would very simply put it this way, and in evangelistic preaching, we must be crystal clear. Clarity can never be overrated in evangelistic preaching. It involves a message about God, number two, a message about man, number three, a message about Christ, and number four, a message that demands a response. Now, I wish I had time to fill in all the gaps in the headings, or rather the headings under that, but it's a message about God, that we've been made in the image of God, we are accountable to God, our Maker, and that God by His holiness is the standard by which all of us will be measured, that man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that when Adam sinned, the whole human race was thrown into sin. We, we became sinners before we were ever even conceived in our mother's womb. And we inherited a sin nature that has been passed down from Adam. And we enter into this world speaking lies and going astray from our mother's womb. And we ourselves have, have, have transgressed the law of God. We, we are lawbreakers, and the curse of the law is upon us, and that curse is death. Cursed is everyone, everyone who, who breaks the law. And the wages of sin is death. And then it's a message about Christ. And in that order, there is no good news so you know what the bad news is. Uh, the good news just makes you yawn if you don't know what the bad news is. Uh, the good news is just interesting, curious, nice. But when you know what the bad news is, that you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and then you hear that God has sent forth His Son into this world, that God has demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, it becomes not just good news, it's great news, it is the greatest news that anyone will ever have or ever know. That is why Paul said, we preach Christ and Him crucified. And so there's five main things in my mind as I preach Christ that, I, that they're like anchor points for me. And you can anticipate what I'm, what I'm going to say. His virgin birth, His sinless life, His substitutionary death, His bodily resurrection, and His present enthronement at the right hand of God the Father. And we have to preach Christ if people are to be saved. Uh, Spurgeon said, if we want more conversions, we must put more of Christ into our sermons. He said, a sermon without Christ is an awful thing. He said, a sermon without Christ 
It's like the day without the sun. It's like the night without the moon. It's like the river without water. It's like the fall without a harvest. It's like a body without a soul. And as only Spurgeon can go on and on. He said, a sermon without Christ is is an empty well that mocks the traveler. A sermon without Christ is is a cloud that never rains. There is no blessing apart from Christ. And then a message that demands a response. Repentance and faith. Repentance is the turning away from sin, and faith is a a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and embracing Christ as one's Lord and Savior. It is the commitment of all that you are to all that He is. It is crossing the line and entrusting your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when I stood at the front of the church and and when my bride came down the aisle, I was saying to her, I forsake all others and I give myself to you completely. Should my commitment to Christ be any less than that? I mean, it would be idolatry if my commitment to my wife was greater than my commitment to Christ. To commit my life to Christ necessitates that I I turn away from the things of the world. I turn away from my my own selfish living and my my self-righteousness. I I turn away from uh, all other religions and anything else, and I turn exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I take Him to be my own. And I wish I had times to go with you today to go through all the metaphors of a saving faith that is used in, in the New Testament. But there are so many aspects of saving faith that are expressed with different metaphors to, to, to receive Him as you would receive and welcome someone into, into your life, uh, that you would eat of His flesh and drink of His blood, that you would enter through a narrow gate. Just like you would take, you would thirst and, and drink of Christ You take Him and and you bring Him into your soul just like you would take water into your mouth and swallow it. And there are so many different images to deny yourself and take up a cross and now to begin this journey of following after Jesus Christ. But just think in your evangelistic preaching under those four main headings. It's a message about God, a message about man, a message about Christ, and a message that demands a response. And it ought to be that we could wake you up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and within two seconds, you're on the third point on that, (laughs) that it just naturally flows out of your mouth. Now, the next heading that I want to give you is the summons. And I have four things under this that, that are so needed in our evangelistic preaching. The first is invitation. We must be inviting people to come to faith in Christ. And by this, I do not mean to get up out of your seat and walk forward and sign a card. I mean right where you're seated this very moment, 
You need to take the step of faith and to come all the way to Jesus Christ. And we must be inviting people to come. We have to do more than just tell them about Christ. We have to invite them to Christ. And think about the preaching in in Jesus' own ministry. He was continually inviting people to to come to Him. I, I just quoted some of those verses. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my burden is easy and my, my yoke is light. And Jesus is throwing open the gates of paradise, and He's standing in this open door. And He is summoning and calling and inviting those who are outside the kingdom of God to to come into the kingdom through Him. Listen, when when I met my wife, I remember when I asked her to marry me, I had to do more than do word studies on agapeo. I had to come to that point in the conversation. We were sitting in a car in front of a restaurant in a parking lot, and I finally had to say those words that I was so nervous to say, will you marry me? You have to, what they say, pop the question. I said, wilt you? And she wilted. (laughs) She rolled her eyes over at me, and I picked them up and rolled them back. (laughs) It's just us guys here, okay? So, (laughs) no, but we need to be inviting people to come to Christ, and I think we're too scared or we're too proud to beg. We need to be inviting people to come to Christ. Second is persuasion. We need to be persuasive. There is a Greek word, pytho, P-E-I-T-H-O, pytho. It's translated into the New American Standard as persuade. Paul was constantly persuading men. He wasn't just tossing it out there and, hey, you can take it or leave it. He's trying to, according to 1 Corinthians 9, to win you to Christ, to win you over to Christ. And that necessitates being persuasive. I need to sell you, and I mean that in, not in a crass sense, on the positive benefits if you will commit your life to Christ. What Christ has promised to do. And I also need to warn you that if you do not commit your life to Christ, what Christ has also promised to do, and I need to be persuasive. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. If you don't persuade men, you do not know the fear of the Lord. 
You know the fear of man. You don't know the fear of the Lord. So there has to be this persuasion of seeking to win people over to Christ. And then third, under this, I would say questions. To ask questions. To ask diagnostic questions that force self-examination. You need to be continually saying, where are you today with Jesus Christ? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? What prevents you from coming to Christ? Is it the sin you would have to give up? Is it the embarrassment that people have thought you've been saved all along and now you would have to admit you've, you've really never been born again? Is it the peer pressure? Is it the friends you would lose? What is it that is holding you back? But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And please note, those are two questions Jesus asked in His evangelistic preaching. They're they're heart-searching. They force the issue in the heart of the listener. You need to be a skilled asker of questions. And then fourth, under this urgency, you need to press for the commitment to Christ now, this moment. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. The Bible says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. I, I think we, we, we let our fish off the hook. We, 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 we let people get away. We, we need to press them now, today. We need to tell them tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day. That hell is filled with procrastinators who waited and waited and waited until there was no time left, and now they're in hell. We we need to reason with them, but with a sense of, of the immediacy of the moment. Here's a sermon you need to pull up on Google and read. Not while I'm preaching, but <laughs> let me put that qualifier. By the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Here's the title of the sermon, Now. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. I've never preached a day in my life after reading that sermon. And Spurgeon reasons with his listeners. My text says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. I know what some of you are saying. I want to go home and think about it. My text does not say go home and think about it. My text says now is the accepted time. Some of you say, oh, I want to, I want to go home and I want to pray about it. My, my text does not say go home and pray about it. My text says, behold, now is the accepted time, and as I see you now in this pew, and as I see you now under the sound of the Word of God, I call you by God's grace to believe now in Jesus Christ. We need a sense of urgency. And sometimes we get into these long book series, and and I love long book series. You know, four years in the Gospel of John. Five years in Romans. 
But we think that we always have tomorrow, next Sunday, next month, next season. That's why Richard Baxter said, we must preach as a dying man to dying men, has never to preach again. It needs to be consciously in our mind that this may be the last sermon I will ever preach. This may be the last sermon they will ever hear. I need to put it all out on the table. Now, I want to talk about how to improve your evangelistic preaching. How to improve it. How to get to the next level. And every effective preacher is always trying to get to the next level. John MacArthur has said, effective preachers are intensely competitive in the sense they're competitive with themselves, and they want to be always becoming more effective, sharpening their sword. So how can we improve our evangelistic preaching? Well, number one, know the gospel better. I mean, this is, this is our currency as, as we preach. We need to know the person of Christ, the life of Christ, the work of Christ, the offices of Christ, the terms of Christ. We need to know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John inside out, outside in, and to speak in the language of the Scripture itself. So we need to know the gospel better. We need to know the book of Romans. And we need to know the theological intricacies of, of the gospel so that as we preach, we go beyond our notes and we bring into the sermon these gospel truths that, that we have accumulated. Second, listen to great evangelistic preaching. It's as much caught as it is taught. You, you, just, to, just to hear great men preach evangelistically. I'll give you a couple of names. I was called into the ministry under the preaching of a man named Adrian Rogers. He was a powerhouse of a preacher, a powerhouse. I was literally catapulted out of Bellevue Baptist Church to go off to seminary under that strong, passionate, fiery, evangelistic preaching. I went from that church to Another church, as I went to seminary, W.A. Criswell, First Baptist Church, downtown Dallas. It was the largest Protestant church in the world at that time. When it was Dr. MacArthur's 25th anniversary here, the only preacher they could think of to bring in to preach John MacArthur's 25th anniversary was W.A. Criswell. And it was a landmark Sunday. People still talk about that Sunday, that sermon when Chriswell came to preach. I sat under his preaching for, for five years. I sat under Adrian Rogers' preaching. I, I learned how to preach evangelistically by listening to, to pastors in one pulpit, Sunday by Sunday, Wednesday night by Wednesday night, as they preached the gospel, as they preached through passages of Scripture. Third, James Montgomery Boyce. I love James Montgomery Boyce. 
And you can, you can even read James Montgomery Boyce, but it is so interesting to me how he concludes so many of his sermons. That last paragraph may be a series of eight questions, and they're, they're heart-searching, and they're directed at an unconverted heart, and then his calling people to faith in, in Jesus Christ. And John MacArthur, I, I love John MacArthur, I love his preaching, and I especially love his preaching when, he, when they had church here in this gymnasium, when he was a young man, and he, it would be like five sermons in one sermon. It, it, you, you, would, you would buy a cassette tape, and, and it, there would be so much on that, and he talked so fast, and he was so passionate, and, and listen to great evangelistic preaching. Third, read effective evangelistic preaching. Read Jonathan Edwards. Read George Whitfield. Read Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Read Martin Lloyd-Jones. You'll learn how to preach evangelist, evangelistically by sitting at the feet of, of, of these masters. And I would add in this, read evangelistic books. And I'm going to give you a, a couple of titles. Matthew Mead, the Puritan. The Almost Christian. I, I, I could preach for three months on just the outlines from the Almost Christian. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Around the Wicked Gate. Joseph Eileen, A-L-L-E-I-N-E, An Alarm to the Unconverted. And he has another book, Sure Guide to Heaven. You learn how to incorporate framing the gospel in your sermons as you read great men like this. Number four, preach specific evangelistic sermons. Just designate one a quarter. Tell everyone you're going to preach an evangelistic sermon. Get your in-laws here. <laughs> Get your outlaws here. <laughs> Invite your neighbors. Invite your work associates. It's going to be an evangelistic sermon. Do you know that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached three times a week regularly, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Friday night? We normally identify him by his Friday night Roman series. Every Sunday night was an evangelistic sermon. His wife, Beth Ann, said when people asked her about her husband, she said, you'll never know my husband until you know two things about him. Number one, he's a man of prayer. And number two, he's an evangelist. And you think of him as an expositor. And he was an expositor. But she said he was in reality, in his heart, he was an evangelist. And Lloyd-Jones, throughout the week, had many invitations to preach in many different places. 
And he, like Spurgeon, who was before him, would go on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday off to other cities in England to stand in the pulpit of a, of a young preacher in order to help him in his ministry and stabilize his, his ministry. And so as Lloyd-Jones would be ready to hop onto the train to take him to where he was going to preach during the week, guess which of those three sermons he picked up? It wasn't the Roman study, and it wasn't the Sunday morning sermon. It was the Sunday night sermon that Lloyd-Jones put in his briefcase to take to preach around England. Because in his heart, he was an evangelist. And he was wanting to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. And you and I need an IV hookup of that. I need that. You need that. Number five, Vary your evangelistic preaching. Preach from Old Testament narrative. Preach from the law. Preach from Hebrew poetry. Preach from the prophets. Preach from the preaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Preach the parables. Preach the discourses. Uh, preach the sermons in the book of Acts. Preach from the epistles. Preach from the book of Revelation. Don't be predictable. Don't be just repeating yourself constantly. Use all the, the full counsel of God in your evangelistic preaching, and people will always keep their, will, will tend to keep their ear attentive. And one more, speak with stark contrasts. Make the issues black and white. Set them at polar opposites. People, everyone, are either saved or they're lost. They're either believers or they're unbelievers. They're either going to heaven or they're going to hell. They either walk in light or they walk in darkness. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. They're either lost or they're found. And Lloyd-Jones, as you know, was a physician, a very eminent physician before he entered the ministry. And he was, was an expert at diagnosing disease. And he brought that into his preaching. And Lloyd-Jones loved to think about it in this way for those Sunday night sermons, especially out of the Old Testament. He would think of the disease and the cure. And there's one fatal disease, and it is sin, and there is only one saving remedy, and it is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And from whatever text he took, he had those two main uh, headings and ideas before him. Let me give you one more. What would this be? Number seven? Number eight? Seven? Address the whole person. Mind, affections, and will, and in that order. Instruct the mind, teach the truth of the gospel and the doctrines of the gospel, but don't just stop there. Raise the affections of the heart. Bring people under conviction of sin, which only the Holy Spirit can do. And then invite the will. 
and summon people to faith in Jesus Christ. So address the entire person. And the only person who plays with a full deck on this is the evangelistic expositor who is teaching the mind, who is exciting the heart, and who is summoning the will. All three of those areas. And then I'll give you one last one, and then I've, I've got to, to finish. Preach with the vivid metaphors of the Scripture. The Scripture uses analogies, metaphors, to paint pictures in the minds of the listener. Think about Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for the way is broad and the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. But the gate is small, or the gate is narrow, and the way is small that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Painting with pictures on the canvas of of people's minds. He ended that with the building on the solid rock, building on shifting sand. He talked about sheep and goats. He talked about foolish virgins and wise virgins. He talked about wheat and tares. He talked about good fish and bad fish. He he used so many different metaphors, and so did Paul. Paul talked about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And Jesus talked about fruitful branches and barren branches. Uh, Jesus talked about flavorful salt and salt that has lost its savor. And so, there's so much more that I wish that we had time to, to talk about, but you've got to start somewhere. And I know that you've already started, but as God gives you the opportunity include the preaching of the gospel as you ex- exposit passages of, of Scripture. And if you can ever come to one of my institutes on expository preaching, I would love to have 48 hours with you to be able to talk about how to do this and open it up for questions and for us to interact and to, to talk about it. But grab a handful of seed and scatter as much of it as you can, as far and wide as you can, and pray and trust God to cultivate the soil that it will germinate by the sovereign grace of God and bring forth much fruit. Well, I need to close in a word of prayer, and then we're going to be heading over and hearing Mark Dever preach. Father, thank you for this time that we've had together to talk about preaching the gospel. Lord, I feel we've left so much unsaid and so much that needs to be said, but I just ask of you to use what we've discussed today to stir up our hearts and to renew our minds and to rekindle within us a passion and a desire to be used by you to be a harvester of souls, to be a a soul winner, uh, to be one who would be an instrument in your hand to bring others to faith in Christ. Oh God, we ask that you would do this for the honor and the glory of your own name, and so that there would be more voices 
singing the praise of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.